Westmount, he still is our God. He still is our salvation. What a joy to sing that together. I now invite you to take your Bible as we turn our attention to God's Word. and We'll turn to Exodus chapter 23. If you're visiting with us and do not have a copy of God's Word, you will see one in the rack in front of you. Please help yourself to that. The second book, the 23rd chapter, Exodus 23, that has been our study here at Westmount. And we've arrived at the final portion of the law, at least as it's given in Exodus, the final portion in this book. Yes, this portion completes the formal case law section given here at Sinai, which has been our study. Of course, there's much more to the Mosaic Law and the case laws, if you will, much more. You'll find those in Leviticus, of course, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Many more cases, in fact, upwards of 300 when we talk about the case laws in the Mosaic Law. However, for our study here in Exodus, the law has been now formally presented And Yahweh wraps that presentation here with two things, with two things, promise and warning, promise and warning. And we will see these two three times each in our passage. It's going to be cyclical this morning. You're going to see promise and warning three times each in our passage, again, presented in cycles, promise then warning, promise, then warning. And beloved, we remind ourselves of that pattern because this is key. And I will open this morning with a bit of Bible 101. It's just so important. God leads with promise, not warning. See that? God leads with promise, not warning. Our God doesn't say things like this. Be faithful to me, obey me, and if you do, then I promise this good thing. That's not your God. Promise, then warning. This is not conditional. Promise is not conditional with God. He initiates, he promises. He never ever says in God's word, do this and then I will enact a promise. Praise God, Yahweh, is not like that. No, God is not like a struggling parent trying to gain control of rebellious children. That's not Yahweh, and you know that scene. No, no, God is Father Almighty, completely in control of all things, children, behavior, and all. That's God. And in His sovereignty... As we see always in Scripture, here it is, He leads. He leads with promise. Remember, He calls Abraham, and before Abraham does anything at all, this is crucial and just review for us here, He calls Abraham out of Ur, out of pagan worship. He initiates, and before Abraham does anything at all, 
He says this, listen to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And note this, he leads with promise. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Before Abraham doubts, before Abraham does anything, good, bad, indifferent, God says, here is my promise. Abrahamic covenant. That leading promise is reiterated, by the way, in Exodus, before Israel does anything at all. Anything at all. Exodus 3, we again, just refreshing this morning. Exodus 3, verse 17, listen to this promise. I promise, this is to Moses, to Israel. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, And the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Amazing. That is a sweeping promise that leads, that leads, especially the account in Exodus. God initiates. God is out in front with. God leads, always with promise. This is what we learned, those that were in FOF downstairs this morning. As Jerry taught us, God sovereignly initiates. Praise God. His initiation, his leading. And in the context then of promise, which is our great hope, in the context within promise is then this warning. Warning. This we saw in Exodus 19. After promise fulfilled, right? Remember, God said he would bring them up out of Egypt and he did just that. After fulfillment, in Exodus 19, then warning, Israel what? In light of the giving of the law, here's the warning, you must obey Yahweh's voice. Remember the limits imposed around the mountain with a warning, lest God break out. That's when warning came. And then the warnings we've seen throughout the law over the past few weeks, the case warnings. The warnings to a redeemed people to be set apart, to conduct yourselves in this particular way, this holy way. All the law we have studied in the context of promise, yet laced with warning. With warning. Often, as you recall, our study over the past few weeks, often the warning of death. The warning of death. That is how serious the warnings are from Yahweh. God says, listen, you are delivered, my people. You're delivered, my people. My initiation, my work, me, Yahweh alone. Now God says, live in light of that deliverance. You see that? Live in light of that. You're free now, not in bondage to your own way and your own sin. You're actually free to live, serve, and worship me. Amazing. With that, we will see something in this passage we've seen before. We need another 101. Deliverance is not a free pass from God. Deliverance is not a little card, monopoly-sized card, handed down from above that floats down 
when you die, you'll be okay if you just take one of these. That's not what deliverance is at all. A component of your life. Make sure you have eternity insurance. That's not what it is. No deliverance for Israel, for us church. Listen, because the Bible declares this from Genesis to Revelation. Is complete life change and redirection. It's your life going this way and now it's going that way. That's what conversion is. That's what deliverance is. Deliverance is freedom from bondage. This is so key. How many in this room can declare this? I was once in bondage to myself. That was the direction of my life. And now deliverance is I'm free unto Yahweh to live for Him. And I don't need words in one sense to personally testify that because my life declares it, right, Christian? My life declares it. I am now a slave to Yahweh. As you will see, deliverance is not a free pass. Said another way, deliverance is a life completely obedient to God. Salvation, being a Christian, is a life completely obedient to God. No corners for yourself. It's a life that in every recess of your soul, listen, listens to Yahweh alone. That is affirmed as strongly as it can be in our passage. So strong this morning as we conclude this portion. Look down at verse 20 with me. Let's just read it in full and then we will study it. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased And possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. And from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. 
They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray. Our Lord God, in light of this text, we feel the the weight, we feel the commands, Lord, the warnings. Yet we also recognize them in the context of your faithfulness, your promises. And Lord, we rejoice. And we ask now that you would illuminate our eyes to see promise and warning this morning, to receive and understand, and by your grace, live out, live out the truths of this text this morning. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, beloved, three clear cycles here. Three times we see promise, then warning. Maybe you've caught that already in the reading of this passage. Each with its own theme, by the way. So we're going to look at promise and warning three different ways as the text reveals it to us. So let's dig into the first that has everything to do with listen. Promise and warning to listen. To listen. We read the promise first. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, the obvious question as you look at verse 20 is this. Who is this angel going before them, right? That's an obvious question, and it's a good one for the keen Bible reader. And we're going to come back to that. And listen, we're going to treat that fully in a moment, so not to worry. Because the following verses help us with that, very clearly, in fact. But first, let's just consider the promise that the angel guarantees. So we're going to zero in, look at it, on the promise. Again, verse 20. By Yahweh's hand, an angel, or a guardian, will go before Israel to guide and carry them. And now we would say aimlessly, right? Is this just aimless wandering? The angel doesn't know just to wander? No, look again. To bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. I ask you, is that not intentional? Is that not purpose? That is a promise to see you, notice, from A to Z, from step one to the end. That's quite a promise, is it not? I will send an angel to take you from the beginning to the end. To bring you not only to the end, but to a place prepared. That is the leading foundational promise for Israel here. And it's this. Israel, you will get there. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? Israel, the first thing I want to say, Yahweh says to my people, the first thing I need to say, not don't do this, do that, make sure you get, the first thing Yahweh says is, you will get there. Can you imagine that being the first piece for your journey? I'm saddled up, I'm ready, and I have a guarantee from God that I will get there. Let me ask you something. Is that not encouragement? Is that not hope? Yahweh says you will get there. And where is there? Where is the place prepared? Look, the promised land. Turn back to Exodus 3. Turn back to Exodus 3. We read from verse 17 earlier, now back to verse 7 and 8. We just keep going back. So helpful. 
Let's pick up. Remember, this is the account where Yahweh meets Moses. He comes and he meets Moses on the mountain as he's a shepherd in the wilderness in Midian. So he's having this discourse with Moses here on the mountain. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. In other words, Yahweh says, this is why you're encountering me, Moses. Because I've heard the cry of my people. Think about what we've studied in the law, right? Remember, we looked at many cases where he will surely hear their cries. That's your God. A merciful God that hears the cries when no one else does. Here, he says to Moses, this is the context, I am now here appearing to you. I'm going to draw you close in a moment. I'm going to deliver my people because I've heard the cries of my people. So good. I know their sufferings. Verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. Wow, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Yes, if you were to look across at verse 17, you'd see exactly the same group of nations. Same promise here. God just reiterating the same promise never changes. And with that, we know two things with that promise as you look and zone in on it. First, the promised land is a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. God is promising, he's guaranteeing to take his people from a place to the place. Do you see that? Not just any place. The promised place. A broad land flowing with milk and honey. That's one. Two. Note the nations there again. We have to comment on this. Identical to verse 17. Each one listed appears identically in Exodus 23. And of course, as some of you know, where else does that appear? Genesis with the original promise, as we mentioned already. Nothing thus has changed. Promise is the same. Land the same. God's plan the same. Now before we turn back to chapter 23, and while we're in chapter 3, let's take advantage of this and let's recap, go further back in the chapter to the very beginning of chapter 3, and very important recap. And remember, as we've commented on already, who Moses met in the burning bush. Let me read you verse 1 and 2. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then note this in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The angel of the Lord, you see that? That was our first introduction to this Old Testament individual in the book of Exodus. You remember that. And when we first saw him, we made a couple of observations about this angel of the Lord. We said, one, that the angel was divine, a manifestation of the Lord himself. And there are a number of ways we looked at this and demonstrated this, but Here is one that's right embedded in the text. This is confirmed first and foremost by the name itself. I want you to look at that construction there, the angel of the Lord. Do you see that? That's Malak Yahweh in the Hebrew, or the angel of Yahweh, or it would be right to say it this way, the angel that is Yahweh. 
The construction is very definite there in the original to say the angel that is Yahweh. This is identification. That's what this name is. It's an identification. All that to say simply, the name tells us that the angel is divine. He's deity. That's one. Two, more, we noted the angel had characteristics of God. Now turn back to chapter 23. We noted the angel had characteristics of God. Now, this really comes through in the warning portion of the section we're in. So it would behoove us to read that. Let's look at verse 21 and 22 as we continue in our text. Pay careful attention to him, and who would the him be? We look back to 20, the angel, and obey his voice. This is the angel in view. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Consider, I want you to look at those two verses. Consider the attributes of this angel. Did you catch them? In just two verses, we can note at least three attributes that certainly get our senses up, right? Let's look at them. First, we'd say, look at verse 21, pay careful attention to him, the angel, and then note this, and obey his voice. It's founded in 21 and then again in 22. Why? Because God declares over and over that we obey who? God alone. You never find in Scripture, will you ever hear, God commands you to obey another voice. In Scripture, and as we see demonstrated here, God says to this angel, obey his voice, an affirmation of deity. That's one. Two, Yahweh says, look at the end of verse 21, if you rebel, he will what? Not pardon your transgression. Now we're in the economy of who? Who? This angel has the authority to pardon transgressions. If you were to fast forward to the New Testament, go to an account, think about the paralytic in Mark 2, Mark 2, 7, even those against Jesus recognized what? The power to forgive sins is strictly the domain of who? God alone. God alone is the only one that can pardon transgression. That's two. But then this, look at the end of verse 21. God says of the angel, what? My name is in him. My name is in him. That would be, I would submit to you, as clear and direct an association as one could find. So this angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. But there's one last piece here, and we cannot miss this. Why is God revealing himself and leading this way? Maybe you've asked that as you read your Old Testament, right? Why is he doing it this way? By way of an angel, by way, it would seem, of another manifestation. Why? Why is he doing this? Yahweh, but at the same time, a manifestation distinct to Yahweh. Do you see this? Again, this is what we were learning downstairs this morning, were we not, with the Trinity? Yahweh, but at the same time distinct to Yahweh. Well, like all acts of God, this has purpose, and here the angel is no different. Where else, as I just mentioned, in fact, do we see sameness yet distinction? The Trinity. 
the Trinity. Sameness yet distinction with God. And here you see it with the angel of the Lord. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each distinct yet one. And in one sense, we see the same thing here, do we not? The angel is distinct from Yahweh. He's beside him, if you will. Yet, he's the same as Yahweh. And when you think of earthly manifestations of Yahweh, distinct yet still God, you think of who? Jesus Christ the second person of the Godhead, in his appearance on earth, the inauguration of that, the incarnation. We're celebrating Advent. We're in the middle of the Advent, the coming of Christ in flesh. It's what we celebrate now, and it's Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means what? God with us. That is the Son of God as we sing. Now listen, when you think about Advent and Emmanuel, you know this. God coming down, appearing to his people, leading them out of bondage, guiding them to a place prepared, forgiving sin. Why? Because his name is God. Because he is God. Does that sound familiar? Yes, what Christ fulfilled, and here it is. What Christ fulfilled in substance, in actuality, We see here in this angel in shadow, in shadow. This angel then prefigures, points us to Jesus Christ. I hope that makes sense. This angel was a central figure in Israel's redemption. Is that not true? Think about all the things that we're learning about this angel in this text. A central figure in the redemption and deliverance of Israel and church. We know who is a central figure in our redemption. Jesus Christ. So this angel in shadow, and this is what we've been seeing, points us to the substance to come, the deliverer to come. And it doesn't surprise us, Westmount, because we're learning this. Do you remember rest and feast last week? Rest and feast. Last week's Sabbath rest and Hebrew feast, we said what? We're merely a shadow of the true rest and the true feast, which is only found where? In Jesus Christ. The Sabbath and all those feasts were just a shadow with intent to point our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to the fulfillment, the embodiment that was coming, the promised one, the substance, Jesus Christ. And I want to turn our attention to this this morning with the angel of the Lord. It's no different. In fact, this is a grand canvas that God is doing here. A grand canvas. To say the substance is Christ. The angel of the Lord points us to him. Pointing to the Christ. Same here with the angel of the Lord. This divine manifestation with Israel from deliverance to Canaan's entry. Isn't that amazing? From start to finish, never forsaking, but leading and guiding the whole way. This angel whose voice God's people must obey, this angel with God's name in him, points Israel to the one who would come. They would move them from this temporal deliverance to eternal deliverance. They would point them to the one, the Messiah, that they would become very familiar with in their law, the scriptures, the promised one. Messiah, that's it. 
the one the coming prophets would foretell. And oh, how they miss this, as many do today. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, Micah 5, Zechariah 9, on and on it goes. And what about Isaiah 7.14? What of that prophesied child and his name, God with us? That same promise of a coming Messiah, listen, veiled here in this law. Veiled. In shadow, but pointing us to the substance, the fulfillment, Jesus, the Christ. So the promise the angel sent before Israel to guide them on the way, and the warning to obey his voice, not rebel against him, and follow him. That's promise and warning to listen. That's one Secondly, as we continue in our passage, promise and warning unto life, unto life. We move to verse 23 for the next promise. Look at it with me. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. Once again, we have the reminder from Yahweh to his people. Do you see it? That the angel will go before you. You see that? Love promises affirmed by our Lord. The angel will go before you. Now this is an important location. Note it. In front. Do you see that? Isn't that a promise? He will go before you. Why is that important? Beloved, Yahweh is not our co-pilot. God Almighty is not our traveling buddy. None of those things. And we, we can be dulled down to that sensibility. Jesus, just take the seat beside me as I navigate this land. God is, listen, beloved, driving, leading, directing, guiding. Yahweh is out in front of us. That's his position. And this has been the position of the angel of the Lord. Here's the just amazing thing as we've been tracking, right? That's been his position since deliverance. Do you see how this maps to today? Out in front. This has been the position of the angel of the Lord since Egypt. Remember Exodus 14 during Israel's deliverance. Out in front. Remember also in that account what God did to Israel's enemies. Do you remember that? Again, as we're going back now in Exodus. But remember 14.20. Yahweh coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. You talk about a buffer. That's God Almighty. says, I will go between. Egypt drowned. Wave upon wave, Egypt was overtaken by the sea. And that's where Israel had come from. And no different to where they were going. That was Egypt. They were going to Canaan. And this time God says, verse 23, All those nations, remember Israelite? Remember your father Abraham? Do you remember those nations declared to him? Well, nothing's changed. With the covenant I made with him, nothing's changed. All of them appear again here. And all face what? Look at it. God blotting them out. It's kind of a tricky word to translate. But really at the heart of it, at that word, we could render it fading away. Fading away. Disappearing is another way to say it. In other words... I will gradually make them all 
disappear. And of course, that is exactly what Yahweh does in the conquest 40 years later. Recorded from Joshua to kings, gradual victory, conquering, and settlement in the conquest. God promises and God fulfills. And in light of that coming fulfillment, God again, and we'll get familiar with this in this passage, God again offers a warning. Look at verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. So through that blotting out, through those years of conquest, Israel, Yahweh says, listen, do not, verse 24, bow down to their gods or serve them. That's the warning with the promise. Right? I'm going to blot them out, but as I'm doing that, don't bow down to them. That makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, deliverer. We listen. Of course, though, we know how Israel fared here, don't we? We know how they made out with that not bowing down thing. Even most of the kings would bow. Isn't it tragic when you read the kings? Most of them follow the ways of Canaan. Beg Assyria for help. Now go back to Egypt. And you should ask, you should ask, if you're tracking with this text, why? That should be the question. Why? Why did they do that? Look at all that God has done for them. After all that sovereign protection and deliverance, how could Israel even think of nodding, let alone bowing to Canaanite gods? Have you, you must think that at times. How could they even think of doing that. Yahweh is mighty. That's a good question. And the answer, in part, so much more we could say theologically with our anthropology to answer that question, but that's another day. But the answer, in part, is found at the end of verse 24. Don't miss every inspired word. Israel is told, look very carefully, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You see the description there? It's not just do this, it's do it this way. Do you see that? And I would submit to you, we all miss this in corners of our life. These commands, by the way, if you were to go into the Hebrew in the original, they're emphatic. I just love this. That's one thing about the Hebrew I really love. Emphasis just screams out. It's emphatic do not just overthrow don't just get there but look at the text utterly overthrow we all know what utterly means and the pillars don't just break them rock of them and they break them to pieces in other words we could render it shatter them shatter them i think if you're being honest with your heart this morning and we are you see the problem don't you Israel overthrew, but not utterly. They broke, but they didn't shatter. The accounts in Judges and Kings portray this. Renewal, yet with what? Renewal with the high places. Renewal with the high places. Consider, I want you to consider just one account. There's many that I could read, of course. Let's consider Jehoash. 2 Kings 12, you can just note that. Let me read it to you. This is just a summary of his kingship. 
Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And then listen to this. We want this said of us, with Yahweh right. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Is that not a testimony? I want to be like Jehoash, right? Hang on a second. Verse 3. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. You catch that? The high places were not taken away. Those are those corners of Canaan that were told here in this law that should have been utterly overthrown. The pillars that should have been shattered to pieces, they were left in place. You know, Jehoash did what was right, and you can see so many people coming to his defense. He did what was right, even had Jehoiada, the priest, who preserved him, and he listened to him. But there was those things, those high places. That was Israel, even after being warned. Even after being warned, Israel, yet it became a pattern. And church, listen, so to us, so to us. We have examples and we have warnings after our deliverance. Beloved, is this not true? How, when you think of your own life, again, as we do some real heart surgery this morning, how hard is it for us to let go of the high places? You know what I'm talking about. It's just so hard to let go of the Canaanite high places. We don't want to let them go. We hang on to the Canaanite gods and we go easy on the Canaanite pillars because we can't let them go because we're breathing Canaanite oxygen. Oh, we may overthrow and break them in pieces. You get a real emotional song. You get a real good teaching. That's it. Take the baseball bat out to it in a moment. That's it. But listen to me. Long term, utterly in pieces... Let's not get carried away, Christian. Let's not get carried away. Easy. The truth is, we love our high places in Canaan. That's the truth. We love them. And if we're being really honest and penetrating, we just can't let them go. I'm no longer surprised at the rationalizations, how they grow, to hold on to Canaanite high places. You'll hear it like this. It's just a song. It's just a show. It's just my escape. It's just my little thing. I don't do it all the time. I'm really limiting. It's not a lot. And on and on and on it goes. The pet high places that we just hang on to and we can't let them go. Overthrow them. Give me time. Utterly. Whoa. And listen, why is this important? Why why do I feel strongly to tell you this this morning? A, the text does and shows us. B, we hold on to the high places and then listen to me. We just can't understand why holiness is so elusive. We don't understand why we have these snares. We don't understand why we're spinning our wheels. We don't understand why we're still here and not there. Because we can't let go of the high places. Beloved, please, heed the example of Israel here because they didn't heed the warning. 
They could not let it go. And Westmount, I implore you, let that not be you. Church, you utterly overthrow and you shatter the pillars. You tear down with ferocity the high places in your life. You get at it with the Lord's help and strength. Now, God doesn't have to do this, but he offers this warning. Look at verse 25. He doesn't have to do this. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Amazing. These are the kinds of verses, by the way, before we treat them, I just want you to look at them for a moment, that in irresponsible hands, you know what I'm talking about, this gets wacky, doesn't it? In the wrong hands, with the wrong lens, with the wrong intention, people just go bonkers with verses like this. Say, well, there it is, I'm claiming that. Bible butchers go here and claim all these blessings and more. Listen to me today, long after Canaan. Well, let's keep this simple. And read the Bible rightly. What have we been learning in FOF? What have we hopefully been learning through these years? Good hermeneutics, good Bible interpretation, right? A good understanding of what the text means. Not means to you, what it means. What does it mean? First of all, this is number one, these blessings are for who? Israel. If we say nothing else about this text, these blessings are for who? Israel. And specifically Israel upon entry into the promised land. Is that you and I? No, not at all, in fact. This is for Israel in the promised land. It's for them at that time. This is not for God's people of all time. This is for this unique and special time of conquest. By the way, of Yahweh revealing not just who he is, but here it is, what he can do. Is that not true? We've seen this already in the plagues. This is an extension of God saying, I am God alone, Yahweh. This is who I am. This is my name. Now, my people, I will demonstrate to you what I can do. This is an extension of that. So that would be number one, getting that in the right context. Secondly, this is the way God operated often for Israel then. If you're tracking in the law and reading from Genesis to Exodus, you recognize this is the way at that time Yahweh operated supernaturally with signs and wonders. Think of barren Sarah. Think of manna from heaven. Think, of course, of the plagues in this book. In this time and administration of God's law, this is how God worked. Vividly through signs and wonders, affirming to his new people again who he was. And what he could do. And so the promises here make sense and are no different in context. Is that not true? In fact, they they fit right in. If, If you serve the Lord Israel in that promised land, your life will go well. Your food will be blessed. I will heal you of your sickness. I will fill the womb. More, I will fulfill, look at it, the number of your days. In other words, I will give you life. And that's it simply. Serve me, obey me, live for me, and you will have life abundant. Church, in principle, it's no different today. It's no different today in principle. We live according to God's way in what? 
We will have life, and not just life, but we will have life abundantly. That's flourishing. When you live life God's way, sure, that says nothing of the circumstances that you're in. You will go through trials, you will suffer, you will hurt. But you will have something deep down inside, listen to me, an eternal security and a temporal strength that's unmatched. That's life abundant. In principle, that's true of us today. And we will have life abundantly. Listen, this is post-deliverance. This is post-redemption. This is life quality for Israel. Live God's way and live. Live your way and life is a struggle. We get that. But we need reminders as such. And let me just read you one. Read you one. Just note it. I want you to listen carefully to this very familiar text. It's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drive away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. It's always been that way with Yahweh. Two ways to live. And not just in a meta overall way. Beloved, it's true. Every single choice you make, that's right, flows from a fountainhead of either living God's way or living the way of the wicked. Every choice you make, you align yourself one of those two ways. Only one way to live, Yahweh says that fulfills the number of our days, verse 26. So that's the promise of warning. Promise and warning with life. Last one here, promise and warning with land. Again, we began with the promise here found in 2731. So let's look at it. Again, we start with promise. This one's a little longer. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, And from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Lots of promise there in those verses, as you can see. Look at it. God moving, driving, confusing, settling. This is an expanded look at how God is going to go before Israel and conquer. We get a little snapshot of it here. He will, verse 27, send his terror before Israel, throwing Canaan into confusion. That was the promise. Now, note this, 40 years later, I want you to consider the language there. All kinds of things of enemies turning their backs and hornets and so on. But I want you to consider, we fast forward to the conquest now, and I want you to listen to one account 
This is of a certain Rahab that you know well in Joshua 2. And she recounts why she's going to hide the spies in faith that are coming into Canaan. And she says this, listen. Before the men lay down, so these are the spies in her house, to to be hidden, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why, Rahab? Why? Why do you know that? Why are you doing this? Why are you risking this? Why? How do you know? Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, listen to this, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man. Why? Because of you, for the Lord your God. And then listen to this confession from this Canaanite. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That confession comes after the terror that was sent before Israel. Enemies turning, running from such terror. The people melt in terror of God and his people, as prophesied here. Look in verse 28. God says that terror will be the form of hornets. Actually, it's the hornet in the original just a definite pointer on something going on here. Some speculate actual hornets. Some say it's other nations. Some say it represents Egypt, have the symbol of a bee, especially goes out to battle. That's what some would say. The point, however, is driven home in verse 30. When God says, look at verse 30, little by little, right? Think about this. Who is the true focus of the driving out? Who is behind the hornet, whatever it be? Little by little, I will drive them out from before you. You see that? Mo decide, whoever does decide, ultimately, sovereignly, it's Yahweh driving out. Do you see that? And again, note that gradual expulsion from the land. Again, if we could give an image of this, this is like, you know, you take the hair dryer to the water on the table and you watch it evaporate slowly, right? That's exactly what's going on here. Gradually, slowly, but surely. I will... Expel them from the land. Expel them from the land. God explains why this conquest will be a process. Look in verse 29. This is why it's going to be a process. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Why? Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. God protecting them in the land from beasts that would inhabit suddenly. With a sudden expulsion? That's what's going to happen. The wild beasts come in suddenly. I, I'm reminded of earlier in the pandemic, we had a bear in our neighborhood. A bear in our neighborhood because no one was on the streets. And I mean, we live right here, right? Same kind of thing. A quick expulsion, no one on the streets, the wild beasts will come into the, to the streets. This is what God, and, and know what Yahweh says There's purpose and intention to the way that I'm going to give you this land. I don't want wild beasts to come upon you. You already have conquests to deal with, not beasts as well. No, with Yahweh, this conquest would take time. Through Joshua, through judges, through kings. And cresting with Israel's beloved king, King David. And he was, of course, the king of war. 
Only at the end of his reign, as he handed the kingdom over to Solomon, his son, would Israel even see a glimpse of these land boundaries. Given here, look in verse 31. Those boundaries, as you see them there, really only seeing their fuller expression as David handed off to Solomon. Those boundaries that mark the outermost borders of the promised land, then the conquered land. Again, it would be a promise fulfilled even amid Israel's rebellion. It was coming, and like promises we've seen, it came with a warning. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely, surely be a snare to you. Again, emphatic. Now, we'll have more to say about covenant next week. So we're going to leave the greater aspects of covenant for next week. But we will zone in at least on how it's expressed here. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. That is because, Israel, you have a covenant with who? Yahweh. You have a covenant with Yahweh. Don't make a covenant with Canaan. You have one with Yahweh. He is the God you serve. Not their gods. That is both the promise and warning in the land. Canaan's gods, in fact, were no gods at all. They were false. They were fake. They were futile. But, of course, Israel could not help but serve the gods of Canaan upon entry. You can just imagine the wide eyes of going into Canaan, right? They just couldn't help it. Sometimes, in fact, in bold, graphic, blasphemous fashion, right up to the kings. I think of Manasseh doing what as the Canaanites did? Burning his son as an offering. That's how much they couldn't help it. When in Canaan, living like Canaan, ungodly, unholy, to their detriment. Yes, their heart... When you think about that picture of Manasseh particularly, their heart was not just corrupt, it was what? It was dead. It was dead. There's nothing beating and living there. When you're conducting yourself like a Canaanite, your heart is dead. And that is why, as time and the prophets would reveal, they needed a new heart. And a new heart was to come. And a new heart is still to come for Israel. There's a promise awaiting full fulfillment for Israel. One day soon, Romans 11.26 tells us that Israel's salvation is coming. It's amazing. It's coming. That future day where they finally, just picture with me if you will, they finally will abandon the high places. Right? You won't get any footnotes in that text. They will finally abandon the high places. And finally embrace the substance. The one they ignored and missed and neglected and rebelled against. And with hardened hearts cannot see. The one staring at them in Isaiah 53. The substance of the shadow. The Christ. Church until that day and the means God uses for that is us. Our salvation. Ongoing in the church age. Listen. Gentile. Saved. There's a purpose to our salvation in this age until the fullness of the Gentiles come as Israel grows in jealousy. And God is saving not under an old covenant, but now under the new. Let's consider this as we move to the Lord's table and turn to Jeremiah 31. Fitting for us to close with Jeremiah 31 as we consider 
Old and New Covenant. Up until this point, by the way, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah has declared judgment. That's what he's been doing in his ministry. Well, here as we get to, as you really turn the corner in the middle of the book, a, a prophecy now for Israel. That they will not desire the high places one day. And why? No, this is why. The law, the very law of God, will be within them. This is what this famous text says. Written on their hearts. And Gentiles, listen, Gentiles, Westmount Gentiles. We rejoice, as Romans 11 tells us, because we've been grafted into this. And this is where, again, proper hermeneutics, proper understanding, a proper grand revelation of God causes us to rejoice at great Old Testament texts. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward now. They're going to distribute the elements as I read this passage. Jeremiah 31, and we're going to zero in on 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Thank you. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin No more. The promise, do you see it, is true of all of those, Jew and Gentile, that turn from their sin. There's a promise here. The promise is actual for those, as Acts 2 tells us, that get cut to the heart when they're regenerated, when they're called and regenerated and have eyes opened by Yahweh. The promise is actualized here at this table, if you're here today, for those that have repented, been baptized, and turn and call Jesus Christ Lord, as demonstrated through every corner of their life. It's for you, if this is you. It's for us as one body to participate and share and have this fellowship together. It is open to you. But if you're here this morning and that is not you, and listen, I want to be crystal clear this morning. If you have not been cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit, that means convicted of living your own way. It doesn't mean I have a label of Jesus means I have a life of Jesus. If it's not you, and the fruits of that cutting to the heart, starting with baptism, moving through sanctification, a life pursuing God, if that's not true of you in life, we would say to you in love, let these elements pass you by. Don't partake of them. 
Don't, even if you've taken one already. Hold on to it. Put it in the rack in front of you. Don't do that. For one thing, they're meaningless to you. They're meaningless. They're just a wafer of bread and a cup of juice. And maybe already you're looking at them and saying, what's the big deal? And that's how you know, right? To those of us regenerated, cut to the heart, saved, we know what these represent, don't we? The new covenant. And how we can have temporal strength and eternal security. New covenant. New covenant. Church, that is the promise that we partake in together. And it's the one that sheds the light on everything we do each week when we come to the table like this. I want you to consider as we think of promise and warning the command in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Note this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Westmont, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing here, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And often these days, we proclaim it while we also proclaim, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Until he comes again. And it's a promise of his return. But Westmont, the table is not just about promise, is it? That's not just what the table is about. What else is at the table? Warning within promise. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us take even a minute right now. Before we partake together, let's take one minute, bow your heads. Let us examine as God commands us to. As God commands us to before we remember this great sacrifice for us. Westmount, this represents his body broken for us. Let's partake together. Westmount, this represents his blood shed for us, the mark of the new covenant. Let's partake together. Sovereign Lord, thank you that we can partake, partake of a promise. God, we are moved beyond expression at times that you would initiate and move and do all of these things, especially in light of our helplessness and futility. You would send your son 
to take on human flesh, to live the life that we can't, to live it perfectly, to lay it down, to lay it down of his own will, to be buried and to conquer the grave, vindication of his perfect life, to be risen on the third day then ascend and to give life to all those that would believe that. God, we thank you. Thank you, Father, that you've looked on even us Gentiles here at Westmount. Thank you that you've grafted us into this great promise. Oh God, we don't deserve it, but we have that promise in you. So we thank you as we sing to you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.